You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you further. You step forward little by little, not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. everyone, welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I am Nick Peters, your host, seeking to bring you the very best in Christian scholars and apologetics. And today, we're talking about the topic of salvation. Now, some of you might think, how does this get connected to apologetics? Well, I think it definitely does. And I guess, I think I interviewed him back in February on an excellent book of his, The Birth of the Trinity. And Apparently, I didn't scare him too much because he seemed pretty happy with the thought of coming back on again this month. We're talking about his book, Salvation by Allegiance Alone. And his name is Matthew W. Bates. He is a PhD from the University of Notre Dame. He's an assistant professor of theology at Quincy University. He's the author of the hermeneutics of the Apostolic Proclamation and the Birth of the Trinity. So, uh, Dr. Bates, welcome back to the Deeper Waters podcast. Well, thanks, Nick. Thanks for treating me decently last time uh, so as to not scare me off. Uh, <laughs> it's glad, it's great to be back. Yeah, let's hope that I keep up the trend here. Now, if my audience doesn't remember who you are, this is the first time they're hearing you, tell us a little bit about uh, how you got to be doing what you're doing. All right. Well, I am, as you just mentioned, assistant professor of theology at Quincy University, which is a Franciscan school uh, in uh, central Illinois. Actually, uh, come to think of it, I've actually just been uh, promoted to associate. So now I'm associate professor of theology. Um, but uh, this is a Franciscan school, as I did my PhD work at Notre Dame. And so this is a, a Catholic environment I teach in, but I'm a Protestant, which is probably important to know. Mm-hmm. Um how did I get to be doing what I'm doing? Um, I'll give you the the very brief version, uh, and that is whenever I was an undergraduate, I was studying physics, and I was required to take a, a religion or theology course at Whitworth uh, University in Spokane, Washington. Uh, and as I was doing so, I decided to take New Testament. Uh, I was already a Christian at that time, but perhaps not um, a very serious one, and I think God had a lot of work to do in my heart. Mm-hmm. Uh, but nevertheless, I felt pretty comfortable with scriptures. I'd read some scripture in the past and decided that class would would maybe be the best among my options. This was an intensive Jan term, term course. So all I did for a couple of weeks was just read the Bible. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, as I did so, I discovered I didn't really know how to read it. I thought I did. I knew a lot of Bible verses, but I had no idea how to kind of put meaning together appropriately. Uh, and this, this really caught me by surprise as I realized I had so much to learn. And not only that, was fascinated. Uh, and at the same time, God really began to do some, um, some more heavy-hitting spiritual uh, work in my life as I would 
been sort of caught up in certain kinds of sins that needed to be cleaned up, and God was convicting me about those and uh, help, helped me to get involved in some urban ministry. So through this experience, this wonderful experience of um, being changed through a New Testament course, it, it really set my life on a trajectory to uh, being a New Testament professor myself, mm-hmm. uh, which, is what, which is what I do now. Uh, I, I'll go ahead and let you ask another question. I, I, could, I could keep telling you more about my story if you want, but uh, you might have something else that's jumped into your mind. Yeah, we should probably go straight to the book here, although I can say your story and mine can be quite similar, except I did go to Bible college because there wasn't much else that I knew about, and that's what drove me to ministry because I started realizing there is so much that I don't know that I thought I already knew. Yeah. Yeah, I, I had I've had that experience numerous times mm-hmm. uh, throughout my academic career, where you get disrupted from some previous paradigm uh, that you cherished and realize that God is leading you into a deeper truth. Uh, and so, for me, that a lot of that happened um, after college when I began studying on my own, um, began to really read the Scripture and read secondary literature, Bible commentaries, and things mm-hmm. like that. But then, uh, when I went to seminary, uh, I got disrupted further. Mm-hmm. Now, this book, Salvation by Allegiance, is what I'm about. Now, I did do a check today. So far, it looks like James White hasn't decided to do a 12-part series talking about this book yet. So take that as you will. I'm not sure what inferences <laughs> you want to draw from that. Um, <laughs> um, why this book? I mean, what what is so important about learning about Salvation by Allegiance alone? Do we have salvation wrong in the church, or what? Um. Well, I think that it's not that we have salvation wrong. There are plenty of people getting saved and uh, that have been saved down through the ages, but certainly the grammar that we use to speak about salvation, we might be able to clean that up a little bit. Uh, and so part of the book is purpose towards, a, you know, an ever greater precision uh, with regard to salvation. And obviously salvation theory has been something that is very controverted. You know, there's been fights, uh, intense fights about this, especially uh, since the Protestant Reformation. And as we're at the 500th anniversary, of the Protestant Reformation uh, this year. Uh, perhaps it's a good time to uh, to continue the project that the Reformation started of um, of continuing to uh, to draw ever finer shades of meaning with regard to our salvation theory. The book, um, though, I think is is really aimed at trying to reassess. Uh, certain key categories, especially faith, the gospel, and works, and how they interface with one another. I think faith is one of the key ones, because like you, I see faith as one of the most misunderstood terms there is. And being in the apologetic sphere, it's not uncommon to hear someone give the whole new atheist idea of faith is believing something without evidence. And the sad thing is a lot of Christians will tell you the exact same thing. Absolutely, yeah. So it's devastating, devastatingly wrong and, and deeply problematic. Mm-hmm. So if we have the idea of faith that's wrong, that still doesn't tell us what the right idea of faith is. So what is faith? Well, it's obviously it's a big term, uh, and part of the way I frame it in the book is by talking about what faith is not, so we can do a little bit of that too. But let me start with the positive then. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Faith is a word that has what we might call, you know, in the scholarly world, a large semantic domain, which which is a fancy way of saying it, it has a broad range of meanings. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, what meanings are being actualized in any given context? Well, that depends. Um, and one of the things that we can be a, a little bit unaware of because we, we see the words faith and belief uh, translated very uniformly in the Bible uh, is that the word uh, itself, pistis, in Greek and is the noun and the verb is pistuo, uh, these words actually have a considerably broader range of meaning than faith and belief. Uh, and if you looked into a Greek lexicon from that treats the first century of the Christian era, uh, the New Testament time period, you would see definitions uh, that would include things like trustworthiness and and you would see uh, faithfulness. Uh, you would see pledged loyalty or, 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 or ideas of pledging uh, connected to uh, to the word pistis. So, uh, uh, and as you uh, look a little more deeply, uh, if you began to do some word studies, you would notice, in fact, that it, it, it does mean allegiance quite precisely in some contexts. So this is then the big question, you know, that, that really drives my book is if allegiance is as part of the legitimate semantic field for uh, – uh, uh, for the word pistis, if allegiance is, is really part of the legitimate range of meaning, then why are we excluding it in our conversations about salvation? Mm-hmm. Could that be because we have anxieties, especially us Protestants, about uh, the relationship between uh, uh, faith and works or pistis and works, and we're trying to close off uh, uh, pistis from any kind of thing that might smack of a work? Yeah, I think it's Witherington and Nehray in their book Portraits of Paul, they say that Aristotle even once used the word pistis to describe a forensic proof. And if you go to Acts 17, when Paul is giving his Mars here sermon, he, he says that God has given us proof of what he would do by raising Jesus from the dead. And the word proof there is pistis. That's interesting. That's uh, actually uh, Jerry Nary was one of my professors at Notre Dame. Mm-hmm. Uh, so as soon as you said his name, I had all kinds of images of him leap into my mind. Uh, he's an interesting man, and that book is actually a fascinating book. Mm-hmm. Uh, it really helps us to uh, this book um, uh, the, uh, that you that you just mentioned. Um, uh, now, I, I, Portraits of Paul. Um, it has a lot of uh, interesting data about what it meant to be a person mm-hmm. in um, in yeah. in the first century, and then applying that, of course, to the Apostle Paul into his world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, when you start your chapter about what faith is not, you start with what would be one of my favorite examples because. I've loved it when these guys have come to my door, but the strange thing is they don't seem to last too long. And that's uh, that's the Mormons. And even when Ari and I are driving through our apartment neighborhood, if I see Mormons out there on bicycles, it, it's practically Christmas. Like, oh, please come visit me. Please come. Now, Mormons have an idea of faith, don't they? Yeah, they do. Um, obviously, the Mormon tradition is diverse, so we can't paint with too broad a, a brush. But um, it certainly does tend toward the direction of an emotive uh, faith. That um, that if if faith and evidence are to to be sort of um, brought together and not really agree with mm-hmm. one another, there uh, at least in a lot of popular Mormonism, there's a tendency to say, well, we just need to go with uh, with with our faith, and if God gives us a warm conviction in our hearts, uh, well, then that should be good enough for us, despite what the evidence says. Uh, they they would also want to to pay attention to the evidence, mm-hmm. um, but uh, only when convenient, maybe. Yeah, I've. Uh 
I've noticed when, in my dialogues with Mormons that if you get them and they start talking about they have a personal testimony from the Holy Spirit, I always chalk that up to saying, question they're unable to answer. Yeah. Now, for anyone interested, we do have some shows we've done here on the podcast answering Mormons. Uh, Lynn Wilder, Bill McKeever, Rob Bowman have all been on talking about this kind of topic. Now, another instance of this kind of faith we have is when we talk about the uh, Word of Faith movement. And we say, where well, if you're not answering, getting the answers you want to your prayers, if you're undergoing a lot of suffering, you're off such, it's because you don't have enough faith. Now, there is some extent of this that you can see in the Bible where it says that Jesus couldn't do, didn't do miracles at a certain place because the people didn't have enough faith. So I think this one could be getting something right, but it's like a little bit of arsenic dropped in a glass of healthy water. For sure. Yeah, I think that um, the sort of name it and claim it, you know, um, ideas about faith are, are very dangerous as those are oftentimes connected to the health and prosperity gospel. Mm-hmm. So what do they have right, though, and what do they have wrong? With regard to with regard to faith, we would certainly want to say that faith can be, um, invo- especially in contexts that connect it to Jesus's mighty deeds, mm-hmm. um, that faith does involve the idea that Jesus has the power uh, to to um, to affect things uh, because he is uh, a mighty prophet, because he's the Son of God, because <coughs> to whatever degree Jesus's true identity is recognized. Um, his mighty deeds connect to that, I think, and uh, and people having faith in his mighty deeds is connected to his person. Um, so I don't think that faith is the wrong word to use there. And so I think you're right when you say that um, that that our um, our access to God's mighty deeds can sometimes be connected to uh, to our faith in God. Yeah. Now, when we talk about deeds, though, that, that brings us to another point that faith is not something that's opposed to works, is it? I don't think that it is. Now, this gets us into um, some some more sticky territory. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that even common sense would suggest that they're not entirely opposed to one another, as if, you know, um, God really uh, just cares about what's in my soul, but he doesn't care about what I do. I think we would all recognize there's something deficient there. Um, of course, um, some some particular expressions of evangelical theology are, are very nervous about works, mm-hmm. right? They don't want uh, there to be any works, obviously, in salvation uh, because, well, then um, we've, we've sort of um, cut into the Reformation's uh, sola fide by faith alone. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously, I think we want to nuance this carefully as the, the traditional way then that most evangelicals have solved this is to say that faith comes first, right? Mm-hmm. That first you have faith in God, and once you have faith, well, then you're empowered to do good deeds, Um, there's, I think that, that it's not that that's an entirely wrong-headed way of describing it. I would say that there are more robust ways of describing it, uh, that we'll probably get to as our interview progresses. Now, on the other hand, there are some dangerous ways of looking at faith and things that we can call easy believism, the kind of person who goes out and lives whatever way they want, say, yeah, I'm good because I went and I prayed a prayer at church when I was 10 years old. Yeah, that's certainly one of the biggest targets in my book is uh, is that, that that's nonsense, right? That um, we don't want to suggest that 
that there's any kind of uh, real notion of faith apart from a submission to Jesus as as the great king. Mm-hmm. And that's really what I'm going to try to get at mostly as, as, as I think our interview progresses is why that's true. Yeah. Now, when we move on from there, we see you talk about uh, what the full gospel is. And I, I really like that you give us, because I go to so many times in a church service, and I hear the sinner's prayer at the end, and saying, so that I can know that when I die, I can go to heaven. And it's like the whole purpose of this life is to make sure you are saved, and then that you can go to heaven. And it's like I think we're missing some things. Yes, yes, um, yeah. That that's oftentimes a you know a, a presentation of the gospel that's sort of predicated around the Romans road. Mm. You know that um, uh, the the very traditional way of presenting the gospel, of course, is to is to begin you know with some sort of program that suggests you know on the one hand you know um, all have fallen short of the glory of God you know but uh, then we you know uh, and that would include you right of course right uh, and that uh, that fortunately for you Jesus died for your sins so that you you don't go to hell mm-hmm. uh, for falling short of the glory of God and that if you just believe that and pray this prayer well then you can be 100% certain that you're saved and uh, and that the saved part is focused on going to heaven. And and just as you expressed, this is oftentimes uh, the way that the gospel is framed. Yeah, and what I'm arguing is that is that dramatically truncates the gospel or cuts it short uh, of its fullness. So, what is the fullness I'm talking about here? Then um, it's really that two 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 problems have happened in that Romans Road articulation of the gospel. The first is that it is really reduced salvation down to a transaction uh, that involves believing Jesus died for my sins. If we want to say, what's the extent of the gospel, really? It's really that believe Jesus died for your sins and you're saved, or trust that Jesus died for your sins, if you prefer that metaphor, Mm -hmm. then you're saved and you don't need to do anything else. Um, Whenever we actually look at the articulation of the gospel, when the word euangelion is described in the Bible, and we begin to look at with more precision, what's the content of euangelion? Uh, In Paul's letters, when we read Paul with care, where he talks about euangelion, what does he mean by that term? And we see that it actually is not really an expression of justification by faith. It's really a narrative about Jesus, about his uh, a, a much fuller narrative that mm-hmm. begins with him pre-existing with God the Father. Uh, then Jesus took on human flesh uh, for us. Uh, and then after taking on human flesh, he did so to fulfill a promise that uh, was made to David. Uh, and so oftentimes uh, the preaching of Paul and uh, the preaching of Peter focuses, for instance, in Acts on Jesus as the, as a Davidide, uh, that he was in the Davidic line, mm-hmm. uh, that he died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, uh, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He was seen by many. Mm-hmm. And then he was seated at the right hand of God the Father, and he will come again as the king. So that's a fuller articulation of the gospel, and I think when we cut it short, we begin to run into problems. Yeah, I, I also think that part of a danger here of this is become is the gospel becomes so individualized for us that it's all about me, when really the gospel is all about what God has done in Christ, and that's not just what he's done for you, but what Christ has done for the Father. That's right, and uh, and what Christ has done for the sake of the world and for the renewal of all creation, and yeah, and so the gospel is much bigger than that, and it's really focused on the story about Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So yeah, I think I think moving away from a me centered gospel to a um, to a gospel that is uh, that that focuses not on what can I get out of it, but on what does it mean to serve the great King, Jesus. That's really, I think, uh, where the heart of my book is. Do you also think that part of this could be <clears throat> that, I mean, as good Protestants, we love Paul, Paul's great and such, but, but maybe we've focused on so much that we don't really pay attention to the Gospels anymore, and we act like the only important things in the Gospels are the death and resurrection and such, and, oh yeah, Jesus is God, and we need to get that shown in, but we don't really look at what he actually taught about the kingdom and such. Yeah, I do think that um, that you're right. I think that this is, especially when we think about salvation theory. You know, we have tended to go to Paul, um, and not wrongly. I mean, mm-hmm. Paul has a lot. Paul has tremendous theological reflections around the meaning of Jesus's death and resurrection that we just don't find in the Gospels. Um, you know, Paul is doing more explicit and intentional theology than what mm-hmm. we find in the, in in um, at least in that way, uh, in a more propositional mode than what we would find in in the Gospels, which is more in a narrative mode. Um, but I think that one of the the great strengths of my proposal, uh, if it if it proves to be valid and and others find it to be agreeable, is the way in which it is able to bring together the kingdom of God and and salvation theory. Uh, that those ideas uh, seem to just sort of uh, miss one another a little bit. Um, but really, the heart of my proposal is that as part of the gospel, Jesus has become the king. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and when we talk about the kingdom of God, then, when Jesus goes out and, and teaches about the kingdom of God, he's telling uh, his followers how citizens of the kingdom should behave and what the nature of the kingdom, uh, what it's going to look like. And so if we begin to see that the, that the gospel is actually about Jesus' enthronement, when Jesus is teaching about the kingdom of God, it connects to the gospel and to his enthronement in fresh ways. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure you'd be absolutely shocked to hear of a person that introduced this idea to me the most was N.T. Wright. I, I think yeah. by and large, he's probably done more to promote this kind of thing than anyone else because I think there's a great danger in our churches today that we go and we try and prove doctrines like the deity of Christ, the trinity, the bodily resurrection, which, of course, we should do, not knocking that at all, but we don't really see the importance of them, except for, you know, if uh, Jesus rose from the dead, then Christianity is true, as if it was kind of just this big show, like, hey, I'm here, I'm God, here's how you know. Yeah. I, I fully agree with N.T. Wright uh, and his importance and uh, and that he has helped me tremendously. You'll see his influence uh, if you read the book on, on you know, um, in every chapter undoubtedly. Um, but I, I think your larger point is valid and, and very important that we don't want to reduce Christianity down to a miraculous display uh, that uh, is all about, like, come to recognize that I exist. Now, that's, that's an important – you know, introductory obstacle for some people that they have to begin there. They, they're not even convinced that there is a God, right? And, uh, they have to come to a place where they can begin to affirm the God of Israel before they're ready to hear, uh, the ways in which the God of Israel has described, you know, um, revealed himself to us and described our, our sinful condition and need for salvation. Uh, so, uh, I think you're right though that, uh, we want to be careful as we think about apologetics, uh, which audience we're talking to and, and what their real needs are. I like how you <clears throat> brought up the God of Israel, because I think that's another mistake that we make. We've had uh, Jackson and Wuon talk about this, which is book One God for All Nations, and that's that too often in 
in a gospel presentation, a person can give a presentation. They start with Adam and Eve and talk about how man fell. And then they just leapfrog it over the rest of the Old Testament entirely and land on Jesus. And I'm that's just scratching my head thinking, you know what? I think that stuff in the middle, it might be somewhat important for us to know about that. Yes, absolutely. And, um, you know, and uh, I think that I'm, I'm, I'm trying to do something to help the church recover that with, um, with this book by focusing on that larger gospel, that it's not a Roman's road, is not an adequate presentation of the gospel. It's actually not even the gospel. The Bible nowhere describes the gospel as, as uh, in a Roman's road shape. Uh, when you look at what the content of the word euangelion means, you know, it's, it's a description consistently of Christ events, uh, not uh, st- statements about how we fall short of God's glory. Those statements are true, that we fall right. short of God's glory and all of that, but it's actually not properly part of the gospel. Well, if we've got the gospel wrong, I mean, what would you say the gospel is, and how do these doctrines such as the deity of Christ and the resurrection fit into the gospel? Yeah, so the gospel is, it's it's really a, a statement of how Jesus has brought salvation history to a climax, uh, and that he's the capstone of all that God has been doing uh and uh, and so it presupposes as its backdrop, you know, the whole story uh, from creation to new creation. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is not the whole story. The gospel is the way that Jesus has brought that whole story to a climax with his saving events. So I break it into eight parts, and I think that these eight parts uh, could possibly be broken into nine or ten or seven, or there could be other ways to do this. But I, I think that these eight points are, are, are more or less irreducibly part of the gospel. You could package it differently, uh, but the gospel is unchanging. It really couldn't contain uh, uh, significantly different elements than, than the ones that I think I, that I argue that it does contain. Um, and uh, these these then are the ones I've already mentioned, uh, that Jesus preexisted with God the Father and was sent by God the Father then as part of the plan of salvation, born into the line of David, died for our sins, and not just arbitrarily, but this dying for our sins was something that was anticipated as part of the whole story because his death is described as in accordance with the Scripture, uh, drawing especially there on 1 Corinthians 15.3, but also uh, perhaps on Romans 1.2 as it talks about the things promised in advance uh, with regard to the gospel. Uh, And then he was buried after dying for our sins. Uh, This is to confirm the reality of Jesus' death. That's really the focus with the burial, that he was really dead. Uh, And then he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So also the resurrection is not, uh, the focus of that is not just that it was a miracle, right, Uh, in order to prove God's existence or something like that. The point is more actually that uh, it was a miracle that uh, was purposed towards um, towards showing that Jesus was entirely innocent, that he was the innocent righteous sufferer, and that this was also anticipated in the scriptures, uh, as that line is also said to be in accordance with the scriptures in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 5. Uh, and then after, uh, uh, after uh, being raised, uh, he was seen by many witnesses. Uh, and then he ascends to the right hand of God the Father. Now, that's the part, uh, uh, that ascension to the right hand of God the Father where he's enthroned as the Lord, 
uh, as First Corinthians fifteen three through five puts it, or as he's uh, installed as Son of God in power, as uh, as it's mentioned in Romans one uh, four. Uh, the, this is really the climax of the gospel, and that's important to my whole argument. Mm. Is that that's the that's actually the high point of the gospel, and really where all the energy of the gospel has been building toward is actually Jesus's enthronement. The atonement is important. Jesus' mm. death for our sins. It's inescapably part of the gospel. Yeah. But the energy is moving towards Jesus as the king, and then, then as the triumphant king, he will come again. And so this is really why, why faith means what it does. Faith is not just believing in Jesus' death for my sins. Faith is allegiance to a king because that's actually the, the response to the whole gospel. Yeah, and of course, for anyone who's interested, if you want some stuff on resurrection, We've got plenty of shows on that one here, so just check out past archives. We've had Mike Lacone on, we've had Gary Habermas on, and you'd all have Tony Costa on about the resurrection. But, uh, Dr. Bates, I can hear some concern here if a parent talking about their child or someone talking about their own child would say, hey, you know, you talk about these eight things that are essential, but when I came up or when my child came up and they became a Christian, I gave their life to Christ, they didn't know about all eight of these things. Should I be concerned? No, you shouldn't be concerned. The way the way that I express it in the book is that um, that these are eight points that need to be believed in as much as we have come to understand the story of Jesus. Um, it's not that most people who have been saved down through the ages could be like naming those eight points or explaining those eight points that I just discussed. If you can't rattle them off instantly, it doesn't mean that you're not saved. Um, most people down through the ages um, who have been Christians have have been deeply familiar with this story as it's been read and articulated in liturgies and uh, you know readings out loud at at, at church or uh, small group Bible studies or whatever it might be. They've they've had some sense that Jesus is the Son of God, that he's the king, uh, that he has died for my sins, that he's ruling. Uh, all of these things are something that, ten- that have tended to be tacitly embraced. Um, so I don't think that we need to have a deep anxiety that people down through the ages who haven't been able to articulate uh, it in the way that I'm articulating it aren't saved. I would argue the way that I put it in the book is that it's sort of the mental, mental furniture that they have come to inhabit and are living on. Right, they they dwell on this mental furniture uh, uh, that is the gospel furniture, even though they 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 couldn't necessarily tell you about all the pieces of furniture. Uh, just like we might not even be aware of every piece of furniture in our room, we use it, uh, but we don't really think about it. It's just kind of there. It's become part of the fabric of our life. And I think many people down through the ages have experienced the gospel in that way. They've actually deeply internalized it, and they couldn't describe it. Yeah, I think we could say that there are people of that might not be fan about all of these, but then as soon as you start listing, I say, yeah, I hadn't thought about that before, but yeah, that, that does match what I believe. Yes, exactly. I think I think I don't think anyone who's a legitimate Christian would be able to deny those points, mm-hmm. right? And and still be a Christian, uh, but being able to 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 spit them out at any given moment is an entirely different thing. But I think on the other hand, um, we might also be concerned if somebody, you know, if 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 a mother was asking, "Well, my child prayed the sinner's prayer when they're." They're four years old, but ever since they've lived like hell, mm-hmm. um, are they really saved? Uh, I would say, uh, I don't think so. 
Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I I would say if they're not if they if they don't actually affirm that Jesus is Lord in the sense that they believe him to be the true king and are seeking to submit their lives to him, then something dramatic has gone astray here and um and that uh, either they didn't understand when they prayed the sinner's prayer that it was not a, that it was not saving, or uh, or something else has gone astray, and that we do have legitimate cause to be concerned. Yeah, I think for a lot of us, honestly, when we come to a point of salvation, at least here in America, we don't really understand all of what we're saying. Now, go over to perhaps a Muslim country where your life could be on the line for what you believe, and you'll probably understand it a whole lot more. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's the absolute truth. It's easy to say Jesus is king or Jesus is Lord whenever it's comfortable and you have a full belly. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I'm here with some thinking about part of the problem is that we don't really use the language of king and lord. We use more language of savior and then having a personal relationship with Jesus, which it, it's kind of what we called the buddy Jesus, where Jesus is more my <laughs> personal friend instead of my master that I'm supposed to bow down to and owe everything in this world to. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I, I spent some time on that in the last chapter. I don't know if you remember it, but uh, uh, I talk about how whenever I was an undergraduate, you know, that uh, the, the kind of the undergraduate world that I was part of went crazy with this, what would Jesus do, uh, you know, sort of business. And, mm-hmm. that, you know, Jesus was your best friend. And so you need to consult with your buddy, Jesus, yeah. you know, about every uh, every possible you know, uh, choice in life that comes your way. You know, you're you're trying to decide whether to drink a milkshake or a smoothie, and you're thinking to yourself, <laughs> "What would Jesus do?" You know, or I think you know, Jesus you're try- would have both. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, or you're, you're you know you're trying to decide whether to buy Nikes or Adidas, and you're thinking, "What would mm-hmm. Jesus do?" You know, I mean, and that's the level of silliness that I think it devolved to, and a lot of it I think was connected to the idea that Jesus is friend, uh, and when that metaphor. Uh, which is a legitimate and God-given metaphor. I yeah. mean, in John chapter 15 uh, or 14, whatever one it is, you know, Jesus very much says that I call you, you know, I I, I no longer call you servant, but call you friend, mm-hmm. you know, um, because the servant doesn't know his master's will. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, and so we do see that the friend metaphor is very, very important uh, and that there's something very appropriate about it. Uh, but at the same time, if we don't recognize that Jesus is the mighty king and that and if that metaphor doesn't override uh, are more minor metaphors, then I do think we get ourselves in trouble. Yeah, I think part of it that you're talking about also is when we get to what would Jesus do, and for the most part, it's a pretty good idea to live by, to consider in, in many more situations, what would Jesus do in this case? It's not an ironclad rule because there are things Jesus can do that we can't do, obviously, but I think part of it then becomes that we reduce Christianity where the goal of Christianity is to be a good person. And no one's yeah. denying you should be a good person, but it's kind of like, I don't think Jesus came down just to make sure we're all being nice to our neighbors. Yeah, yeah. I think you're right. It it's it fu- it puts all the energy on the imitation of Christ motif. It reduces the Gospels, uh, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the teaching in the Gospels to what's the point of those? Imitation of Christ. That's mm-hmm. that's what it reduces it down to. So that why are we studying the Gospels? Well, we got to figure out what Jesus did so that we can imitate it. Mm-hmm. That's that's where almost all the Bible study energy goes. So you right. go to a Bible study today and you're reading through one of the Gospels, that is the question in people's mind. Like, what did Jesus do? I need to know because I need to imitate it. Now, there is some truth to that. We do, we do want to consider Jesus to be a good example, and undoubtedly 
Undoubtedly, he is. But the the main point of the Gospels is to articulate the Gospel. It's to articulate the the narrative shape of Jesus' life as he sent from God the Father uh, and his death and resurrection uh, and the saving significance of that and that the kingdom of God is breaking in around Jesus and for us to think about what it means to be citizens of his kingdom uh, as as he's teaching about the kingdom of God, right? And if we begin to think about uh, that question instead, uh, not just what would Jesus do, but what would it mean to enact his kingdom principles? Mm-hmm. Uh, what would it mean if he is truly the enthroned king and that all authority has really been given to him? If all authority has really been given to him and he's delegating it to us, mm-hmm. what does it mean to enact that kingdom today in the same ways that he was doing it? It, it really reframes how we read the Gospels. Yeah. yeah. I'm just thinking about you've brought so many references, such as our authority has been given to me on heaven and earth. Great commission. So many of us know that, and I think we live in a culture nowadays, and this is why your book is so needed, where we've heard these passages all our lives that, unfortunately, we've become so familiar with them that we don't stop and say, wait, wait, what does that mean? Jesus has all authority? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's um, uh, what what has tended to happen. I think sometimes uh, under certain kinds of uh, paradigms having to do with eschatology or end times, is that Jesus's reign has been put too far forward in the future. That mm-hmm. we look forward to his coming, where he's finally going to, you know, uh, correct all wrongs and make everything right again. Well, indeed, he's going to do that, mm-hmm. um, but. But it's obscured the way in which that's going to happen, which is through him him ruling until all his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. That somehow through the cross, he's already triumphed over his enemies, and he's in the process of bringing about the kingdom of God, beginning with something very small, the size of a mustard seed, uh, and bringing about a mighty garden plant. But that process is under his orchestrative rule. It's as, it's at the kingdom of God is growing under his leadership, right? And um, and so I think that some sometimes what has happened is that. Jesus's rule has been pushed too far forward and 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 made the purview of the future only uh and then we begin to just hope for heaven and hope for God's judgment on the wicked in the future rather than really um having our eyes open to what it means to participate in the kingdom of God right now. Well, people who listen to my show regularly know that I am an orthodox preterist so I can agree with so much of what you've said right there. And when we get to the halfway point of our show, you will find out, out from the listening audience that next week we are going to be talking some about preterism. But so much of this also depends on your view of faith as allegiance. And you know, that's a pretty strong thing that needs to be established. I think a lot of people may go with faith. I'll just go to Hebrews 11.1, 1, the evidence of things unseen and such. Well, see, there you go. Hebrews defines what faith is for us. We don't need to go any further. Yeah, even that passage in Hebrews is uh, is a little trickier than uh, than meets the eye, as uh, oftentimes we do hear it uh, put forward as just uh, you know the evidence of things unseen. Actually, in Greek, underneath that is the is the word hypostasis, uh, which means the underlying substance uh, more more properly. Mm-hmm. Um, it can mean the evidence, uh, but it, it oftentimes means uh, more like um, the underlying substance, and so it's not necessarily the certainty. So another way of translating that is now. Faith or pistis is the underlying substance, the hypostasis 
towards which hope is directed, the conviction of things not seen. And so part of the point of that might be that um, that we are to discern God's subtle uh, the subtle ways in which his sovereignty is being exercised in, in ways that are not necessarily overt, uh, but that if we have eyes to see, we can see what God is up to. Mm-hmm. Eyes of faith uh, that involve us seeing that the underlying economy of God's activity is more real and more important than uh, necessarily what we can see externally. We see this, for instance, in the passage of Hebrews under under discussion, where Noah is asked to uh, to act on uh, on what he he's commanded by God to do, right? To, to build the ark. There's no actual evidence that any rain is coming or any anything like that. But he's he's called to act on that uh, because God's word and the economy of God is more certain than any apparent realities. Uh, and so we see that uh, understanding faith in that sense is actually not too far from allegiance, right? Uh, what mm-hmm. what is Noah? In what way is he acting towards God? Uh, well, I mean, certainly his obedience and actions in crafting an ark, uh, his, his acting on uh, the, the, the underlying reality uh, towards which his hope is directed and his conviction of things not seen, it is certainly connected to allegiant behavior. So it's not that far uh, anyway, even if we were to take the definition in Hebrews mm-hmm. uh, from ideas of allegiance. Yeah, I, I think it wouldn't make much sense to say, I believe in Jesus, it's just, I don't really need to show any loyalty to what he said. Yeah, no, that, that makes no sense at all. I mean, the, obviously, that's the uh, the narrative that the free grace movement wants to give, mm-hmm. uh, is that Jesus died for my sins, all I need to do is believe that factoid, and God requires nothing else of me. Uh, and it's really salvation by, by believing in a proposition. It's not uh, connected to his lordship in any clear way. And I think that's a deeply, deeply dangerous uh, articulation of uh, the gospel, which is no no gospel at all. Yeah, yeah. I think for me, us when we talk about what it means to be saved, what does it, it take, some of us would turn to, and understandably so, Paul's message to Philippian jailer: "Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you yeah. and your household." But of course, you know, we could go and turn to James for contrast and say, you know. Demons believe that Jesus is Lord. They're not saved. So what is Paul really saying to this jailer? Yeah, um, well, I think that uh, one of the things that we should notice whenever he he says uh, uh, this to the Philippian jailer uh, is the way in which it it's connected to patron-client relationships uh, in the ancient world and the way in which it involves embodied activity. I think both of those things are in view here. Um, and uh, and so uh, if we were to kind of look through what happens in that passage, you know, um, the, the, the man who, uh, who uh, you know, ends up uh, giving his loyalty to Jesus, we want to just use – uh, my terminology, uh, you know, he ends up uh, practically caring uh, for Paul and for um, for Barnabas. Uh, it's Barnabas in that episode, is it not? I'm mean, just trying Silas. to top of my head. Silas. It's Silas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he ends up yeah caring for uh, Paul and Silas, you know, in kind of practical ways, washing their wounds, uh, and uh, and doing so, uh, you know, with uh, a very deliberate uh, 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 disobedience to. Uh, the local authorities, the local magistrates uh, who are still in the thrall of Caesar and are mm-hmm. trying to enact some sort of allegiance to Caesar. 
Um, so I think that uh, that that passage actually, uh, in the way in which uh, Paul and Silas um, uh, uh, call upon uh, uh, this man to uh, to um, you know to pistua pistuus on uh, epi, I, I believe is the term in Greek to believe upon, uh, but to give a lo- uh, allegiance upon uh, would be the idea. Uh, I think uh, that it does involve um, something that in- includes bodily activity quite clearly. Yeah, I, I think we could very see if we studied some more about how radical the, the jailer's activities were, because Philippi was a Roman colony at the time, and everyone in there was supposed to be seen as a citizen of Rome, and here would come the magistrates leading officials in the morning, and lo and behold, what do they see? The jailer having breakfast with one of a pri- with two of the prisoners in his own house, and then you know, this kind of violates your social protocol here, what you're supposed yeah. to do with prisoners. Yeah. Yeah, um, exactly. He baptizes, uh, they're baptized, and he's, uh, yeah, hanging out with the prisoners. But, yeah, the magistrates are very concerned with all this, right, because they've beaten Paul and Silas. You know, and the text emphasizes that they were Roman citizens, right, mm-hmm. he, uh, that the magistrates had them flogged as Roman citizens. And once the magistrates find this out, they're very distraught, right, because they're still – uh, they're still giving their allegiance to Caesar, uh, whereas clearly the jailer has switched his alle- allegiance to this new Jesus who has been proclaimed as the Messiah by Paul and Silas. So uh, I think this does illustrate the way in which Jesus is Lord uh, is at the heart of the gospel and that Pistis involves uh, giving loyalty to a new king or to a new lord. And this is language that I think can be very hard for us to understand because we don't live in a monarchy, and we could understand, for instance, being a lawyer to our president, but we don't treat him as a lord in that sense. Yeah, I think it is much more difficult to get the idea of kingship or lordship in our our contemporary society. One book that I'll just give a shout out to that I think is helpful for um, thinking about this a little bit is Josh Gipp's book, Christ is King. Uh, I can't remember the subtitle, Paul Paul and Kingship, or I don't know what it's called. Um, but Josh Gipp's uh, uh, done, a, done us all a service in showing the ways in which uh, kingship was understood, kind of helping us to just get into the world of what did it mean to be a king, as a lot of his study focuses on what it means to be an ideal king in the Greco-Roman world in which Paul lived, and uh, the ways in which Jesus is described as embodying that ideal kingship by our New Testament authors by especially Paul. Uh, so that's helpful as it it does uh, since we're so distant from that world as we live in a you know a modern western you know democracy or whatever you want to call us so we're in theory a republic but who knows what we are. Um, uh, anyway uh, it, it is difficult and we do need tools to help us to um, to, to have that kind of life and death. Uh, the king's word is uh, is our very existence uh, sort of mentality we need to have that framed for us. Mm-hmm. You know, there are some people, though, when you talk about this, they'll say, well, you know, the Bible is supposed to speak to all cultures. So that, doesn't it seem like we are kind of creating a sort of epistemological relativism if we marry the interpretation of the Bible to a certain culture? Yeah, I see where you're driving at there, and I, I understand the concern. But, of course, the Scripture is given in very you know historically uh, conditioned and specific ways. Um, mm-hmm. We would want to say that you know the Bible grants the metaphor of kingship to Jesus to us as a primary metaphor 
uh, and that we aren't free to dispense with it. We have to learn to translate it into other cultural idioms to think about what it might mean to us today. Um, but we're always going to be responsible to go back to the first century and figure out uh, whenever Jesus is being declared the Messiah, what does that word mean? Uh, what did it entail to be the Messiah? Uh, what kind of kingly prerogatives did a Messiah exercise? Uh, and so on and so forth. So we can't unmoor it from the first century world, but we can't leave it, leave it locked there either. I think for this kind of mindset, the problem is that inevitably there is going to be a culture in the Bible. And if you don't get the Bible's culture, you're going to read your own culture into it, and that's when you're going to make the mistakes. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We have to begin with first – well, we have to begin with the cultural world of the Bible, and, and I, I think that, that that's incumbent upon us. Now, there are a lot of pushbacks of such that could come to this kind of thinking and such, and one could be someone saying, you know, we're – a lot of us listening are Protestants. I'm Protestant. You're Protestant. I mean, I'm sure I've got several Catholic listeners and such, and – I'll, I'll probably get a lot of Catholic doctrine wrong if I talk about it too much, but one of the big things for us Protestants is, you know, we're supposed to go salvation by faith and not dependent on works, but it looks like you're placing a whole lot of talk on works here, so are you saying salvation is by works? You know, what I'm saying is that the word pistis, or the word faith, whenever we talk about faith alone, that mm-hmm. we have to take seriously what the word pistis actually means, mm-hmm. um, and that we have maybe been uh, too quick within Protestantism to suggest that it did not involve any kind of embodied activity. Mm-hmm. That's really – if you want to get to uh, really precisely what I'm all about here, that's quite precise. Uh, that I think that understandings of pistis or fides in the first century world, if you go back and you do your homework as to what pistis or fides meant, uh, it, 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 it tends to – it tends to mean a bodily thing. Uh, and so we, I think there was a tendency in the tradition to psychologize, uh, pistis or to emotivize it, uh, or, uh, to in, in one way or another make it a property of the soul that is not really part of the body, uh, in the, in the Protestant uh, in the Protestant world, or to to make it purely a mental activity that doesn't connect with the body, however you want to frame that, uh, and this was partly, I think, as uh, as a way of trying to save it from it being tainted by works in any sort of way. Um, I think that there's some problems with that on a, a level of language and on the language of just the scriptural witness uh, to our salvation being a bodily journey. It doesn't really make sense that um, that our our salvation, which involves bodily resurrection, uh, would be all facilitated by non-embodied pistis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do like how you said bodily resurrection included in salvation, because too often it can seem like an afterthought, as it were. And I've had gone to way too many funerals where it's emphasized, our hope is heaven, our hope is heaven. And not a word is said about the resurrection. I, I went to mm-hmm. one once, and it was for my aunt. And this pastor went on talking about how he came back from his vacation for this, which I'm thinking, why do I care about that part? And he said, but then we turn to First Thessalonians 4, and we see that blessed hope that Paul has. And I'm going, yes, yes, say it, say it. And he says, that we will see our loved ones again in heaven someday. And it just <laughs> slumped down. And my seat, and I was like, 
Go go ahead and finish me off now, okay? Uh, yeah, you wanted to pull out your Bible and and to read the text to him, huh? About uh, oh yeah, about the, the trumpet blast and the the meeting in the air, and say, you know, I don't think this is actually really about heaven per se. No. Yeah. No. No. It, I, I think what you're talking about with the whole way that we Protestants have looked at it, it's kind of like there was this pendulum, and we thought it was swinging too much on one end, and probably probably rightly so. But then we do what we normally do, and we made a mistake and swung it too far we ever in. Yeah, perhaps. Um, that might be a good way to frame it. I, I think that we. I, what I do want to make clear is that I would understand the traditional Protestant articulation to be uh, mostly satisfying, that I think that the best Protestant expressions have tended to speak about trust in Jesus. Uh-huh. Uh, the, the problem is that trust in Jesus in what capacity? Right. right? And the, the focus has been trust in Jesus as the sacrificial offering who has cleared away my debt and now I am saved. Right. And so the focus has been on the atonement. If you want to say, where's the energy been within Protestantism? Faith in the atonement. That's where the energy has been. What I'm arguing is that the energy is better placed on faith in Jesus, the king. Mm -hmm. So uh, or allegiance to him as as the king. And so that faith is not about believing in the doctrine of the atonement, although we do want to believe in the doctrine of the atonement. um, But that that most of the energy in the gospel is is aimed at an acknowledgement of Jesus's enthronement. Uh, and that that really begins to open up a dramatic shift in how we think about uh, central things to the Christian tradition, faith, works, the gospel. But it, it does help with works, right? Mm-hmm. Because if we begin to think that, okay, what faith means is 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 that I am acknowledging that Jesus is the great atoning king and that he's died for my sins, what do kings want? They want allegiance. And is allegiance a disembodied thing? No, it is not. Right. Does it connect to the law? Uh, yes, it does, because Jesus as the king uh, is the great lawgiver. He gives the law of Christ. He doesn't talk about it much, There is, but there are passages that speak of the law of Christ. What does that law mean, and why would we be even concerned with it? Well, within traditional Protestant Protestantism, it's been hard to answer that question, right? Law is dangerous. Uh, law is the great enemy. Uh, so are works. Uh, but when we begin to see that Jesus is the king, right, uh, we begin to see that uh, the allegiance to him uh, involves an expression of certain kinds of activities, just like it would to any 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 great king that was a human king uh, that you were serving. If you said, well, I'm just serving you with my mind, uh, you know, I'm not actually going to do anything for you, the king probably would not be very excited about your level of allegiance. Yeah, I think that if we're going to talk about this kind of thing, both of us are married, and we could relate this to a covenant marriage of sorts. I mean, I... I can just imagine what Ari would have said to me if I'd stood at the altar and said, I do, and then decided to go back to my apartment by myself and never do anything with her again. He said, wait, what is this? I said, honey, I made you a promise, okay? I mean, my lawyer, too, is still out here to you. I'm not cheating on you or anything. So, see, I'm, I'm good and I'm loyal to you. I think she'd say, you really don't understand what this whole marriage thing is about, do you? Yeah. Yeah, it's a good analogy. Yeah, that it involves a uh, not just a loyalty you would have in your heart in some sort of disembodied way, but something mm-hmm. that you actually have to do. You know, and the question then, uh, you know, I think for a lot of Protestants is going to be, well, how does that interface with the initial decision, right? And the focus in traditional Protestant theology has been on faith 
as the initial decision which justifies us. And then once that's been secured, then we can begin to do good works. Mm-hmm. I think there's some, I think there's some limitations with that way of thinking about it that we can probe more as, as we continue to discuss. Yeah, and I think something that's interesting about all of this is we've been talking about this the whole time as well, and some people might notice that in all of this, discussions about Calvinism and Arminianism just, they, they haven't even been on the radar at all. No, no, although it's been on the radar for a fair number of readers of my book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, yes. Now, you do also have something on the new perspective on Paul in here. So for my readers who might not be familiar, or my listeners, I should say, who might not be familiar, first off, give us a little introduction to the new perspective on Paul, and tell us how it ties into your book here. Okay. Um, yeah, the new perspective on Paul, then, is uh, a movement that began, oh, let's say 40 years ago now, I suppose, something like that. Um, and it's uh, it's really focused on trying to articulate the proper relationship between grace and works uh, in Second Temple Judaism mm-hmm. more broadly. But then um, Paul, because he was a Second Temple Jew, albeit perhaps a strange mm-hmm. one, um, uh, how Paul fits into that world and uh, and trying to assess um, salvation theory in light of all of that. So things were really kicked off by E.P. Sanders, and E.P. Sanders wrote this book, Paul and Palestinian Judaism. Mm -hmm. And in Paul and Palestinian Judaism, he argued for a view called covenantal gnomism. Mm -hmm. And uh, what this complex term means is that most Jews in Paul's day, according to Sanders, did not believe that they needed to earn their salvation. Uh, they believed that they were born into the covenant, uh, and that as long as they didn't flagrantly disregard the covenant, uh, then that they were saved. So that salvation was more by grace in the sense of ethnic privilege uh, than it was by trying to work really hard and heap up a whole bunch of good deeds on your eternal balance sheet so that when the final judgment came, you would have more good deeds than bad. Mm. So Sanders is arguing that that's not the that 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 was a misunderstanding of Judaism in Paul's J, and he really he really questions, especially from the Reformation onward, uh, whether or not uh, the analysis of uh, salvation theory went astray around that. Because what he wants to argue is that Luther and Calvin and the others, uh, whenever they were assessing. Uh, Paul and Paul's argument with his Jewish or Jewish Christian opponents that Paul's beef with them, uh, Sanders wants to argue, uh, was not so much having to do with, uh, with, uh, earning good, uh, getting enough good works to, uh, merit salvation or something like that, but Paul's beef with them, uh, 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 uh had to do more with eth- ethnic privilege. And he thinks that Luther and Calvin mis- misconstrued this. And that really, that Luther and Calvin thought it was all about heaping up works on an eternal balance sheet. Uh, and that they sort of missed the real, p- uh, focal point of grace and focal point of works. Uh, so that's, that's a good start. Uh, do you want to ask, uh, uh, something to follow up on that? Or do you want me to go further by talking about Dunn, uh, and some, uh, and Wright and some other contributions? Contributions of the new perspective. Yeah, we can go further. I think also we can point. Out, this is an example you're talking about with uh, reading the culture into things because it was too easy to read the whole idea of the Protestant Catholic debate at the time and say, "Hey, when Paul talks about his problems with the Jews, that must have been the exact same thing going on," and yeah. yet it wasn't. 
Yes, no, it wasn't. Um, and so, uh, yeah, and so continuing on then, um, James Dunn in particular wanted to argue that works of Torah or works of law uh, were more about badges of ethnic membership uh, or uh, membership within the covenant, uh, signs that you were within the covenant, than they, they were about trying to perform the deed in order to impress mm-hmm. God. So uh, so whenever Paul is uh, speaking against uh, works of law and polemicizing against works of law, what's the focal point? Dunn, Dunn wants to say, uh, on the one hand, that this was more about ethnic membership or signs uh, that you're within the covenant then, uh, and uh, that it wasn't uh, so much about trying to earn salvation. Uh, and then you have people who are against the new perspective on Paul uh, who would question that reading and say, no, no, the work still needed to be performed. Uh, and so they uh, they still did smack of a works righteousness or a desire to earn salvation, and so the reformers were right after all. And so we, we begin to get into um, this, this discussion about the degree to which works of Torah – uh, were regarded as badges of of membership or not, uh, and then uh, we have N.T. Wright who uh, has made some interesting arguments that piggyback on some of that, largely accepting some of the things that Dunn has said as far as uh, that being the focal point of works of law, but adding uh, a whole new nuance by calling into question traditional ideas about the righteousness of God. Uh, one of the things that Wright has argued is that it means the covenant faithfulness of God, that God was being faithful to his covenant whenever we we talk about the righteousness of God with, in association with the gospel, you know, that the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. Um, well, Wright says that righteousness of God is not a righteousness that becomes our own. Uh, but actually is that righteousness of God refers to God's own fidelity to his covenant promises. Uh, so is it a possession that we come to have, the righteousness of God, or is it a reference to God's own faithfulness to his own covenantal standards? Mm-hmm. Those are quite different things. Right. So we have that going on as part of the discussion of the new perspective on Paul as well. Yeah. Well, I'd like to remind everyone about uh, your listening to the Deeper Waters podcast. Now we got Dr. Matthew Bates talking about his book, Salvation by Allegiance Alone. But if you're here next week, and so we're going to be talking about end times eschatology and such, Brian Goddard is going to be my guest. He's written a novel series. We're going to be talking about the first one of series, Tyrant, Rise of the Beats, depicting life under Nero and what was going on in his reign for the early church and what we can learn about today. That's next week. For now, let's get back to Dr. Bates. Now, you've got... This chapter also talking about a sermon that you gave. And you're kind of like me, where you like to be a bit challenging in your sermons and such. And I'd say it was probably a little bit of a shock to the audience that you got up and gave a sermon where the main line of it was, forget about heaven, right at the start. And remind people that resurrection and such is more important. Did, did you get a lot of interesting response from that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I did. Yeah, the, the 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 first lines of that chapter, uh, I, if I remember them right, are you know it's surprising that my first sermon was not my last sermon or something to that effect. <laughs> yes, uh, it didn't it didn't go over terribly well, but uh, it was kind of an elderly congregation, you know, uh, lots of old ladies there. Uh, this was Presbyterian Church, and this was uh, I don't know how many years ago now, fifteen years ago or more. Um, 
Yeah, well, maybe about 15 years ago. Mm. Uh, anyway, uh, yeah, as I as I delivered this homily, which I don't remember the title of, uh, the the main point was that I was trying to get across to the to the congregants that the real f- driving energy and the Christian v- vision of salvation is uh, is the resurrection and the resurrection age and the new creation that God will bring down the heavenly Jerusalem, and that really heaven is not really uh, something that is discussed much in the Bible. Right. Uh, and I think that uh, I think that the members the congregation were a little bewildered. Uh, they they weren't sure what I was talking about, and it sounded quite frankly questionable. Uh, and since I hadn't preached at that church before, uh, as it was also my first sermon, mm-hmm. uh, I think there was some knowing looks being circulated among uh, the members of the uh, uh, of the congregation about you know uh, these these fresh young uh, mm-hmm. pastors who think they know something, listen to their wild ideas. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yes, that's my first sermon. Yeah, and yet so much of that is right, but it's so foreign to what our church is here today because, like I said, you go in church service, everyone talks about heaven, heaven, heaven. And I, I think it's such a great contrast because, you know, if you open the New Testament, you'll see some references to heaven, sure, but for the most part, you're going to see resurrection, resurrection, resurrection. It's like we've got it absolutely reversed from what we see in the Bible. Yeah. Well, part of this stems from obviously the kingdom of heaven language that Matthew prefers rather than kingdom of God. Now, that's caused right. all kinds of confusion right. uh, at the popular level in the churches. And people read that and they read the kingdom of heaven is like and then they start thinking about heaven or something, uh, which, you know, obviously that the kingdom of heaven language there is uh, is a way of uh, of referring to the kingdom of God in some more oblique fashion. Right. Pro- probably because it was considered inappropriate to say the divine name out loud mm-hmm. in Jesus' day and age. And so as a circumlocution, instead of saying the divine name out loud of Israel's God, instead you would speak about the place from which this God reigned uh, right. as a way of avoiding saying his name. Mm-hmm. Uh, and due to this circumlocution, uh, you have all this confusion about uh, about heaven and then it just gets beat into people's head through popular culture. They're watching TV. They're on Netflix, and mm-hmm. you know they they snaps to some scene of of heaven, or you know, or someone imagining heaven, and they you know whatever it might be. Uh, no matter how much we seem to teach about resurrection uh, in the church, you know, beating this into people's heads. Uh, at least in some churches, uh, we're doing this. Nevertheless, it's it's so hard for people to not slip back into ideas of heaven and to make them more primary. Yeah, and, I mean, you know very well that my whole apologetics pedigree tends to have some people in it that have emphasized the resurrection a little bit. But I I look, and like I've said earlier, I look and say, but why are we establishing the resurrection? I mean, I know we do, and I know part of it is, yes, if resurrection happened, Christianity is true, but don't we need some more personal input from it about what difference it makes. Like, for instance, one of the things I'd say about the resurrection means that, well, a few things I'd say is that this created world is good. God used matter. God raised Jesus in matter. Matter is not antithetical to him. And then, in turn, what you do with your body actually does matter. Your body's not just this throwaway thing. I mean, Paul even describes it as the temple of the Holy Spirit. All of this comes from resurrection. That's just the start of it. Yeah, I think you're on the right track. I think that mm-hmm. maybe the most important 
rhetorical thing that we need to 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 emphasize is is that matter is good mm-hmm. you know that it's um that god doesn't hate our bodies that god loves our bodies that god loves our bodies so much he wants to raise our bodies and that our bodies are instruments to serve him and again this is uh, connects intimately to the allegiance thesis mm-hmm. right and some people have asked you know or have uh, in some of the reviews of the book some people have said well this this chapter seemed a little disconnected from some of the others or whatever it might be you know as i kind of transition from uh, a lot of discussion about faith uh, and what faith really means or what pistis really means, that it really uh, can be understood as something closer to allegiance to to this portion on uh, uh, focusing on the one hand on resurrection into new creation and on the other hand uh, uh, ideas connected to uh, bearing the image of God or the what I try to call more provocatively the idol of God. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's been some criticism of that and uh, I think that uh, on the one hand people have failed to see that my book is not just about allegiance. It's it's called <laughs> Salvation by Allegiance Alone. Right. Right? It's, it's, it intends a more holistic view of salvation theory right. um, and have also failed to, to really kind of think through uh, that if we are being allegiant to Jesus that we have a body to be allegiant to him in mm-hmm. uh, that uh, and that this is something that is part of our final vision of salvation that we're just not just souls right. uh, that we might actually get clues from the future about our embodied uh, final existence that might be helpful to us in the present and so that's really what I'm trying to do uh, in these chapters. I have to say I'm very surprised to hear that some people are, don't see this connection here. I was going through the book and thinking yeah this this all flows together. I think everything seems to move seamlessly from chapter to chapter and such. And, and yes, because it's about salvation. Well, good. Well, thanks. I appreciate that. I mean, I've gotten – it hasn't been that many people who have made that comment, but one yeah. or two reviewers. But reviewers say all kinds of weird things, I have to say. Mm-hmm. So you you never know. People people bring their expectations to your book. They want it to answer their questions, right? They right. have their questions. Uh, and that's part of the reason they're reading the book is because they have a question. And whenever you fail to deliver on the exact question that they wanted, that, that they were hoping, well, then they can be left a little bit disappointed or feeling like, well, I wish he would have dealt with this or that or that or that, right? Well, you just can't anticipate anticipate all such things yeah. uh, you just you, you try uh, but you can't anticipate them all yeah I mean e- even in my view there were some things where I said yeah I wish this could have been dealt with a bit more and you and I had some emails back and forth on that Yes, yeah, that's right. You, yeah, you had some more particular pastoral questions, I think, which, yeah. you know, is uh, good and sensible. I mean, this book is for pastors, but yeah. again, it was also for scholars and for students, mm-hmm. you know, and, uh, and so, and, and even for the ordinary pew sitter. So, you know, I had to, especially yeah. in thinking about its appropriateness for the classroom, like if I had too much on the pastoral end, well, then people were considering it for textbooks. Uh, and for textbook adoption would say, no, this isn't for, uh, this isn't appropriate for a textbook. Yeah. So I had to, I had to walk a fine line as I was writing this book between all those, uh, the competing interests of all those audiences. Yeah, I will definitely agree that this is another book that it, whichever audience you're in, it is something that is very easy to read, very reader friendly and such. Well, thank you. Yeah. Now, when we were talking about the importance of the body, I think one of the reasons that people might miss how important this is, is because one of the earliest Christian heresies was Gnosticism, which said the body really didn't matter. In fact, the body was something evil, and you could have two extremes with this kind of thing. Some people would say it's evil, therefore we don't engage in sexual reproduction at all because that's just trapping more souls here. 
And then the other end would say, it's either, and the body's going to be discarded, so hey, do whatever you want with a body, because it doesn't matter in the long run. And Orthodox Christianity would disagree with both of those. Yeah, I think that you're right. One of the things that's always fascinating, I think, in discussing, and this is uh, discussing these matters with uh, with non-Christians especially, and or even with Christians, uh, but uh, uh, for us moderns, right, or postmoderns, however right. you want to classify us, the, the 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 most burning existential question, you know, that we want answered is: Is there really a God? You know, and is Jesus really God? Um, you know, uh, one of the things that's fascinating, of course, is that the earliest Christian heresies uh, affirmed that Jesus was God, but tended toward the opposite conclusion that he's, he was so much God that he couldn't have been man. Right. Uh, they, they tended to uh, to deny his humanity rather than his divinity. Mm-hmm. Isn't that fascinating, right? That, right. Uh, that, that, uh, that, that they were so convinced he was divine uh, that their obstacle was more his humanity than vice versa. I always find that interesting. Uh, but you're right. As we think about Gnosticism, obviously there was sort of um, a variety of different versions of Gnosticism. Gnosticism floating around as it was emerging in the first to uh, and flowering in the second century, uh, but yes, uh, they did have in common uh, with, and we see this with the the Docetism also in in First John. You know, the idea that somehow or another the the flesh is bad, so that um, that we should deny Jesus came in the flesh mm-hmm. is what a Docetist or a Gnostic might say, right. uh, and that uh, the implication of that ethically then is that our bodies don't matter. Uh, yes, Christian good Christian eschatology is the main remedy to that, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Teaching about the resurrection uh, and the goodness of creation as being reaffirmed in the resurrection. Yeah, I think Craig Evans <clears throat> has said that one of the greatest dangers growing up in our churches is we aren't saying enough about the humanity of Christ, that we need him as fully human. And I am looking to do a show sometime, hopefully in the near future, on what I call the neo hymenaean heresy, which is the idea of that uh, Everything was fulfilled in 70 AD, including the bodily resurrection of believers and such, which of course wasn't bodily then. And my biggest problem with that is because that's, it's not so much what it says about us, it's what it says about Christ. Because mm-hmm. it makes Christ resurrection, but first off, I don't think you could consistently say that if Christ was raised bodily, we're raised spiritually, because we're supposed to be raised like he was raised. Mm-hmm. And second, mm-hmm. it, it it removes any purpose, I think, really, for Christ being raised bodily. It it, it goes back to how this is just God doing a show. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. Now, you also have in here the idea that, I mean, a lot of people could get concerned about, well, you know, if you're denying this thing, with forget about heaven, I mean, are you saying that we're not going to be in the presence of God forever and such. And you're not saying that at all now, are you? No, no. I, what I'm really trying to emphasize is that uh, that God comes to us. Mm-hmm. You know that uh, that this is the pattern of grace we see throughout the Bible. That uh, when Adam and Eve sin, God approaches and uh, provides garments for them. You know that uh, whenever we were helpless in our sin, God approached and provided Jesus. Uh, and that uh, that God eventually approaches us by bringing the new Jerusalem down from heaven. Right. Uh, that will be the abode of God and humanity together, and that there'll be an intimate fellowship. 
there, that there will be no need for a temple to broker or mediate God's presence to us, right. but that we will be able to be in the very presence of God uh, and and to be so with uh, those who have found their true home in the New Jerusalem. We're always sojourning right now, and I think um, we can sometimes feel acutely uh, the ways in which we don't seem to fit into our human communities, yeah. you know, and uh, especially those who have uh, the Holy Spirit written on their hearts, we know that there's something lacking, and we're on a sojourn, right? That we yeah. we have our eyes towards our, our true mother, towards the New Jerusalem, uh, that is our mother and uh, our true mother, and that we we can't help but keep looking toward that with longing, knowing that all of our uh, misfits and uh, struggles and and all of this will be satisfied in in a perfect way as all of the citizens uh, that are part of that uh, that 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 that's that glorious city as they all sojourn there uh, as part of the bodily resurrection that's that's uh, one of the beautiful images that's given uh, at the end of the book of revelation yeah i think it could be a comfort to a lot of people that you can take what you're saying about the new heavens and such and it doesn't mean you have to ditch everything you've read about heaven and say C.S. Lewis or Peter Kraft or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think that it is helpful, like that we should still think we will be in God's presence in some capacity as we await our resurrected bodies. We don't really have much information on what that looks like. Um, but I think that we can we can certainly take comfort, uh, you know, to be uh, absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Yeah, I do see that you say in the book also about the, that we will be living a life of worship in heaven, which part of me is thinking, and that's exactly what we're supposed to be doing now, in fact. But I think too many people can also get the wrong idea of this, because we usually think of worship as what happens at a church service, for instance. And I know if you told me that heaven is going to be like an eternal church service, I'd be thinking, Maybe I might want to reconsider this, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um I think that we we should think about um we should think about our future state in much more continuity with our present than we mm. do. I think that that's um if I could if I could stress a point of eschatology, I think that we would, we would want to think that the renewal of the heavens and the earth is truly a it's a new heaven and a new earth in the sense that it's a radical renewal, but it's in continuity with the present order. Mm. So that in the same ways in which we are encouraged by the scripture to exercise our stewardship on Christ's behalf to begin to rule in him uh, to do work uh, and to serve just like Adam and Eve serve in the garden uh, and they, they work until it uh, that we would not necessarily expect those things to go away in, in, in the new creation uh, that we would still be exercising wise stewardship on behalf of God uh, but that the toil uh, will no longer be toil, but will become a delight. That right. there's something about our work right now that's just tedious, right? You, right. you, you're doing it, and even if you like it, I, I love my job as a professor. But let me tell you, after I've graded five essays and I'm looking at the stack of 35 in front of me, it is toil. I'm looking mm-hmm. at it, going, "Oh Lord, help right. me, help me, please, to get through the stack of papers because there's nothing I want to do more than walk away from this grading at the end of the semester because I'm exhausted, right?" right? Um, but uh, I, I think that we will still be exercising uh, work and stewardship of uh, over creation and over other people, even in uh, in the new heavens. Uh, but it will that that burdensome toil dimension that is inescapably part of Earth as uh, our earthly work as part of the curse. I think will be removed. Yeah, and for me, there are gonna be times that I 
getting on my computer like, oh gosh, someone else has a question again. Mm-hmm. And I, I do, uh, for my work, I do a lot of research with reading and such, reviews and such. and But it can all pile up many, many times and I can be, like, yeah. you know, I love the reading and such, but you sure we don't want to just turn on Netflix for a little bit instead here? <laughs> Something of that sort. Yeah. Yeah. I, yep, exactly. And I, I think if we go back to Eden, something I've said about it is that and God pretty much said, look, take care of the garden, eat the fruit that you want, but outside from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and enjoy your life with your wife that I've given you. And my statement about that has been for Adam, his work was his pleasure, and his pleasure was his work. And that's really the idea that we need to get back to. Yeah. Yep. I 100% agree with that. I'd like to remind everyone right now that you're listening to Devil Warriors podcast, and everything we do here is listener-supported people like you. And some of you lately have made some donations I've been told about, and I really appreciate that. It's so good to see generous people coming forward and liking the program and such enough to say, hey, I want to put my money where my mouth is and say I'm enjoying... There's so much I want to, to uh, take part in its ongoing work. And that means so, so much. Every time I hear something about that, I say, Hey, Allie, come here and listen to what's happened here. And it, it just thrills us so much. gives us great hope for the future. Now, if you want to continue that, go to deeperwatersapologetics.com. It's my website. And there's a link there. Help support the work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. And when you go there, your the link will take you to Risen Jesus Ministries, where you've gone to the right place still. Those are my in-laws, Mike and Debbie Lacona. And when you make your donation, and if you can be a monthly donor, that is even better. Hallelujah there. But either way, once you make your donation, this part's important, you contact me or my wife, Aldi, or Mike or Debbie, and say, hey, I made a donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. And they'll make sure we get that donation. And yes, it is tax deductible. Now, you can also go on Amazon. You can buy books that I've either written or co-written. Written is a creed for the ages, the Apostles' Creed and Today's Christian. Co-written are books like Defining Inerrancy, Christian Answers to This Generation's Questions, God and Natural Disasters, Groundlets, those kinds of books. And one more thing you can do also, if you want to support us, you can go to the jewelry store from our website. And my friend Lana Cluster runs that. If you need some information, some help getting there, just get in touch with me, let me know. And you go there and you make a purchase. And whatever you purchase, 25% of that goes to Deeper Waters. Guys, as a man who's been married for nearly seven years, I think I need to let you know that uh, the women in your life will probably like jewelry. 
mean, my wife has an allergy to knickers, so she can't wear as much, but she likes to wear what she can. And guys, if you want to get out there and get your wife all decked out in a beautiful outfit, and hey, I know you want to show off how beautiful your wife is. We all do. And so let's look at it this way. Another reason you can get this is you can go and get some jewelry to make up for that big screw-up that you recently did with her. Or you can buy some jewelry as insurance for that future screw-up that I know you're going to make. Now, if you can't do any of it for the time being, I hope you're still considerate in the future. But at least go on iTunes and please leave a positive review of the Deeper Waters podcast. I'd love to see them. Now, Dr. Bates, do you have an organization you'd like to people donate to? Um, I don't have a particular favorite. Um, a couple that I know that are pretty good are uh, Partners International, Voice of the Martyrs, mm-hmm. World Impact. Those are some that uh, I hear roundabout are pretty good, but I I myself have not spent a lot of time investigating. Mm-hmm. Uh, so those are just a couple that came to mind. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, let's get back into the book here. And the next chapter is Restoring the Idol of God. And this is a chapter you alluded to earlier, and I think a lot of people could be, you know, something, wait, wait, wait. We are supposed to avoid idolatry. What are you talking about, the idol of God? Yeah, so uh, one of the things I'm trying to do here is uh, partly just a you know good teaching technique is you want to sometimes shock people a little right. bit uh, within the within the bounds of the truth. Forget uh, about heaven, to, for instance. <laughs> yes, in order to uh, in order to disrupt you know prior patterns of thinking and to help them to think in new ways, uh, you have to do that within the bounds of what's legitimate. Uh, and uh, I'm hopefully doing that here. Uh, but the the part of the point is that um, is that the word image is actually um, synonymous with the word idol in uh, the Old Testament. That we have a couple of Words that would be synonymous there. Uh, the the main word for idol is pestle, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, the main word for image is tselem. Uh, and there's another word that's often used, likeness, is how it's usually translated in English. Um, and I think that's demut, uh, if I'm rem- remembering just off the top of my head. Uh, but anyway, so we have a number of words that refer to idols. Um, and so whenever we have uh, a discussion of Adam and Eve, and it's said that they're made in the image of God, um, we we had, uh, we need to, to be thinking a little bit more in ancient terms about what an image was. Mm-hmm. Uh, John Walton, in particular, oh, has yes. argued... Uh, I think convincingly that Genesis 1 uh, is descriptive of what we would uh, uh, in the ancient world understand to be the creation of a temple and a a temple garden paradise uh, that would have been near a temple. Uh, And that what we have then is the installation of the idol in the temple uh, with Adam and Eve uh, and that they're imbued with a divine, uh, with a divine presence. And this is something that would have been recognizable to ancient audiences uh, that this is what, uh, what you do with an idol when you place it in the temple. And so what I'm doing here is I'm working with that metaphor of, of, of creation as a temple, Adam and Eve as being created, uh, as idols to be placed in the temple, mm-hmm. uh, which is not the same as idolatry because there is a, a particular purpose for all this. Right. And I have to tell you, John Walton, he's been on this show twice in my, one of my favorite guests to have on here, and he does have a third book I've seen recently coming out. I've sent IVP a request 
for it. So hopefully we'll have him on here a fair time. But his views of Genesis 1, for me, have been a major game changer. I mean, I, I'd long been looking for a way to try and explain so much in a text where I thought, we get so caught up in Age of the Earth debates and evolution debates and such. I mean, I, I don't think Genesis 1 was written about that, but I'm not sure what it was written about. I mean, I read John Barton's book, and wait, 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 this makes sense. Yeah, so he has a, the, there's a number of books that all have similar motifs, but The Lost World of Adam and Eve or The Lost World of Genesis 1, isn't that what it's called? Yes. Uh, are, are two that are really very approachable and excellent. Yeah. And for anyone interested, the next one coming out, I believe it's The Lost World of the Conquest. So, oh, uh, interesting. I hadn't, I hadn't heard that was coming out yet, so now you've, you've intrigued me. I'll have to check it out. <laughs> yeah, Walton's, I think Walton is an excellent scholar. Yeah, I actually, Ari and I actually got to meet him uh, couple of years ago, he, we were in Knoxville, and he came by, and we had breakfast with him, and it was a great time with him. Oh, very nice, yeah. Now, Parvis then also then gets into human transformation, and this is, now we can jump back to the whole idea of being like Christ, and bring it back here, because this is where Christ-likeness really applies, isn't it? Yes, of course, because uh, you know we would want to see Jesus as uh, the image of God and not just uh, any kind of image. We would want to see human images that are uh, Adam and Eve and uh, and ourselves as we are created in the image of God. That somehow or another, are are the way in which we bear the image of God or serve as the image of God has become defaced. Mm-hmm. Uh, that there has been some sort of distortion to the image, but that Jesus is the undistorted image, and not just the undistorted image, but the original image. Right. That he's like the prototype, uh, and that we are the copies. You can think of Jesus as you know the original. You know, a perfect model T, sort of, mm-hmm. and that all of hum- all of remade humanity, all of uh, humanity that is recreated uh, in His image, then uh, would follow in uh, in in that same line as a derivative copy, uh, and that's what we are then as we're recreated uh, in Christ. Yeah, I think that's so important to get because it's not that Adam came and messed up and God said, "Oh, where am I going to?" Oh. Tell you what, I'll send Jesus down there eventually. I'll take care of it. But Jesus was the ideal for man all along. Adam wasn't. Yes, exactly. Um, that we would want to see Jesus as the original and Adam as secondary. So that uh, Jesus is the original prototype. Paul Paul speaks about this in um, in Romans five fourteen. Yeah, yeah. And this man gets back to what all we're going to be doing. You know, because we do, in fact, tie the work of Adam and Jesus together. Adam was put on this earth to rule on behalf of God. That that work order hasn't really changed. It's not like God said, okay, they failed at that one. I'm just going to have Jesus do it all for them. No, no we're supposed to rule on Jesus's behalf, in a sense, as it were, that, of course, he's the supreme lord of us all, but he's going to give us the authority to rule, too. Yeah, that's part of the stunning, I think, um, nature of our salvation, mm-hmm. is that uh, we never cross the cr- the creature uh, 
God divide. Mm -hmm. We never become God. But at the same time, God is not stingy with his divinity. There's a sense in which we become conformed to the image of God uh, and to the image of Christ, uh, who is the image of God. Mm -hmm. And so that as we, uh, as we are uh, moved through the process of salvation, we are increasingly being conformed to the image of Christ, who is the image of God. And so that we, uh, we come to look more like God. Mm-hmm. We never become God, uh, but we would want to say that our full salvation involves a full conformity to the image of Jesus, who is the image of God. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's the astonishing thing, but does it not, uh, is it not, uh, uh, the fullness of who God is, that His love is such that it's not a stingy love, that right. He doesn't want to save us, you know, just to sort of just get us out of the pit and then like dust us off, but He wants to save us in such a way that He brings us up very very near to his own level. Yeah, I, I think once again, for me, it comes back to the whole marriage analogy. I mean, I I know that, for instance, when my wife struggles with her own view of herself and such, my thought is, and when I see some women talking online about these kinds of issues and such, I, I just want to tell them, like, you know what, your husband wants so much and you don't even realize it, you're so busy beating up on yourself and such, you're not really listening to him, but what your husband would like more than anything else, he's married to you. He would love it if you would just fall into his arms, be happy with the joy of his love for you, and just celebrate it. And I look at that and I think, and that's probably what God wants from us too. Hmm. Yeah, that he wants us to just relish a little bit more yeah. uh, who we are in Christ and mm-hmm. to celebrate it. Yeah, for sure. Um, and yeah, so I think that as we think back to the larger thesis, then as you as you mentioned, that Adam's task is to rule. Uh, mm-hmm. That Jesus, then as uh, the climax of the gospel story, he's installed at the right hand of God uh, as the King of Heaven and Earth and is ruling over uh, the entire cosmos. Uh, and that we then, uh, as part of our salvation, then as we're conformed to the image of Christ, we're invited to rule alongside Him. Right? Uh, that that's our ultimate glory and our final glory is that we come to reign alongside the king because we become like him. We become Mm -hmm. fitting servant kings ourselves. And this is not a domineering kind of rule, but a servant kind of rule as we have uh, been conformed to his image. So that's really how this chapter, I think, connects especially back to the allegiance thesis and what it would mean to uh, be allegiant to Christ then is actually to become like him in such a way that we can rule alongside him in a fitting way. I think also this is part of the whole thing about why holiness is so important that we kind of make it seem like God has these arbitrary rules and such and you follow those rules and you're good and God says okay you get to go to heaven but I mean we we say we don't believe in salvation by works but sometimes it sure looks a lot like we do but the very reason of holiness is because that's our profession we're meant to represent God in the way we live, and if we live holy lives, we show rest of the world that we view God as holy. Yeah, I think that our our holiness does connect very integrally to our salvation, and that it, it is in, involved viewing Him as holy, and that it needs to trickle into our own lives. So we, uh, one of the great dangers I think is is uh, is that 
I think Christians can have false ideas about God's omnipotence um, right. that causes problems for how they view holiness or salvation as – uh, the, uh, the idea would be something along the lines of if, if God is all powerful, then God can do anything. So that if God wanted to make a big pile of dog poop taste good, mm-hmm. well, then he could do it. Um, mm-hmm. I think there's something problematic with that argument. I think that, um, that there's a way in which nature itself participates in, in God and in God's qualities in such a way that it's not arbitrary. We can't just, it's, God cannot violate his own nature. God didn't, God doesn't go around choosing who he is. It's, it's who he is is who he is. It's not part of his voluntarism, right? Uh, to choose to be a certain kind of God. Uh, God is by his very nature who he is and that as he creates, there's a way in which creation extends upon that. Mm -hmm. And so that we can't really think about our final salvation. Uh, as being somehow disconnected from uh, from God's own qualities, right. I think that maybe that's something like what you were driving at. Yeah, it's that when we live holy lives, we're making a statement about who God is and what role He has in our lives. And it's staggers when I'm thinking about so many of us will go to church and you know we're going to say. That Jesus Christ is the most important thing in my life, the most important person in my life, that my Christianity matters the most to me. And yet, everything in our lives would seem to say that maybe what's on Netflix or maybe what your favorite sports team is doing matters more. I mean, I'm not saying you, you don't care about those things at all and such, but if we looked at your life, what would the evidence show? Yeah. Yeah, and I think that we need to be more thoughtful about how we, you know, kind of um, craft our, our our life, um, our daily life experiences as a way to help us orient around what we know matters most. Um, this makes me think of uh, James K. Smith's uh, book. I can't think of the name of the title that just uh, came out, which I haven't even read all of yet. Um, but, but there's you are what you love, or something like that is the title. Um, but but it's really focused on the idea that desires are are very important for our Christian life uh, and for shaping our holiness. I did just also get in the mail recently a book by Greg Ganser on our deepest desires, and I just looked up this up. You are what you love: the spiritual power of habit by James K. A. Smith. Yes, yes. I I think a lot of this could also be extremely hard when we talk to younger people in the church and we tell them about the things that they're supposed to do and we don't really give them much reason beyond, you know, the Bible says so. So I I, I can't but think about being when I was in my 20s in college and going to my church at the time and then having a silver ring thing ceremony of sort of a true love waits thing, which I agree with, of course. And the pastor, the associate pastor, got up and he was giving a talk to the teenagers and such there and said, I want you to know that if you go and you do this, if you sleep with someone before you're married to them, you'll be doing it for selfish reasons. And I'm like, okay, I can agree with that. And then he says... You need to think about other things. I mean, what if you get pregnant? What if you get an STD? What about the guilt you feel? What about the shame you have before your spouse on your wedding night? On and on. I'm listening to something. Excuse me, uh, Pastor, those those sound like selfish reasons to me as well. 
And eventually, the more he keeps talking, I'm back there getting bored. And I'm thinking, if you can take this topic and you can make it boring, you are doing something wrong. Our, our young people, I think, are getting that a whole lot, that they're being told these things to do, and they don't know why. It's like the rule was made up on the fly, and we're shocked that when they get in a situation where they're tempted, they're willing to break that rule because they don't see the importance of it. Yeah, and so I think, yeah, you're right. Anchoring it in as its, its true importance is in Christ and, right. you know, that he's the king and that we're obedient to him. And uh, if we want a selfish motivation for this, we could even say that um, that our submission to him as Lord is not disconnected from our salvation. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we wouldn't want to say that we need to have perfect allegiance to Jesus. Right. That would be dreadfully wrong-headed. Right. Uh, that, uh, that we need to have, uh, just like we need a mustard seed of faith, we might want to say we need a mustard seed of allegiance, and we, we know that if we confess our allegiance to Jesus, he'll be faithful to help us uh, grow in our path of allegiance and all of this, and that when we make mistakes, there is he's the atoning king. All of these things are true, uh, but that we can't completely disregard Guard our allegiance to Jesus uh, when we're in these situations, that he has to be the one that matters most, or we'll lack the motivation. Now, I would like to ask you, then, about the kind of questions that I did have when I was reading a book towards the end and such. Like, for instance, I'm. what would you say to a person who does doubt their salvation periodically? You know, they, they might be the person who says the sinner's prayer a few hundred times and such, and they Say, I, I want to know, am I saved? Am I truly there? Am I going to be someone, for instance, that Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. Where, where does my assurance, what would you say to someone like that? Well, the first thing I would say is that those who doubt their assurance or, or who doubt their salvation probably are the, the ones who are in the least danger, usually. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I, th- I think that um, they obviously have a loyalty to Jesus and they're deeply concerned with pleasing him, mm-hmm. uh, that that they wouldn't be having that concern if they, concern if they weren't actually deeply concerned with pleasing him at the bottom of their hearts. Mm-hmm. They know they failed, right? But why are they even asking, right? If they if they don't really have that deep concern to please Jesus. Uh, and so I would say that they're, they're in fundamental allegiance to him, even if they're asking that question. Mm-hmm. Um, doesn't mean that they're in perfect allegiance with him, uh, but nor do we have to be. We would say that uh, that our, 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 our faith or our pistis uh, causes an allegiance, uh, causes a union with Jesus, and that his perfect, his perfect righteousness uh, is indeed sufficient for us from within the bounds of that union. So I, I would I would comfort them with those words. Um, but at the same time, I think Scripture does give us a balance on this um, uh, for a reason. I think it, it, there are passages that do can encourage us to to uh, assess ourselves uh, and to take prudent warning. Uh, if we uh, if we are in need, uh, because there are some that are on the opposite end of the spectrum, some who yeah. who, who never think about their salvation enough, mm-hmm. right? They just kind of figure, well, I'm probably good enough, so like that's all that matters, right? Is like being good enough, and we have to say, no, no. What matters is that are you trying to give your life to Jesus, the King? You know, um, because because if you're not, there's no salvation apart from Him, and we need to we need to give them a stern warning that it's all about Jesus and connecting with Jesus, 
uh, and that uh, doing so, sort of good deeds apart from uh, being in union with Jesus is not salvate is not salvific in any way. Yeah. Uh, so we have to warn them, and, and I think that Scripture actually kind of helps us articulate that balance in First John, uh, where it gives a whole list of things that we can use to sort of self-assess. Um, for instance, you know, this is First uh, John uh, two three, and by this we know that we have come to know Him, Jesus, if we keep His commandments. Notice it's focused on doing something if we keep His mm-hmm. commandments. Right. Uh, you know, another one: the one who claims to be in the light yet who hates his brother is still in the darkness. Uh, and I think here, love and hate is is uh, not just emotional, right? But is actually act. It would involve activity. Uh, and so this is again a test: are you are you actively uh, trying to injure people uh, and showing your your real disdain and uh, well then if, then if so maybe you haven't come into the light yet we're given these practical tests to help us I think to take appropriate warning or to give assurance to say oh no actually I am trying to love people I am in the light yeah I appreciate what you said about it just now Chris there was a time a couple of years or so ago that it happened and there was someone who I knew where and trusted at the time. And I'm not going to get too much in details, but I'll just say this person did something that hurt my wife, Allie, very, very badly. And I'm the husband that if you go and you hurt her, it is on. I'm ready to deal with you at that point. And I had to talk to a lot of people. Clay Jones came to uh, even I was at Winston. He started talking about how Jesus spoke about anger and against your brother in your heart, because he says, you know, the real problem with that is, is that if you have that anger, but it means that if you could get away with it, and you knew that the, as far as you were concerned, the benefits would outweigh the consequences, you would murder that individual. And then you read passages like First John, where it says, you know, if anyone hates his brother who has not seen, who he has seen, he cannot love God whom he can see. And I remember talking with Clay, he let me go and talk to him some, and saying, I, I, I need to talk with someone about this. And it took a while because you know, I wasn't ready to do, to do anything I wasn't going to, but, you know, the emotion at the time was there. And what's moved me past that is honestly the point where now I don't have anger towards this person. I more have pity at what they did themselves and the loss they had to influence my wife in a great way that they squandered. I really do appreciate what you said there. Yeah, well, I think that that's a testimony that the Holy Spirit's at work in your life. Yeah. Uh, that's, impo- that's impossible for us, I think, without the regenerating work of the Spirit. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, and, and that's why John, I think, gives these whole uh, varieties of uh, little tests that we can we can think through that help us to either take assurance or take warning and and when we look back over the course of our lives we realize that you know we may be harboring a, a an anger right now in our hearts right and we realize there's something disloyal to Jesus in that mm-hmm. uh, but we can look back at the trajectory of our lives and say I've been through this before there there have been other times where I've I've been angry and Jesus has healed me from it I'm staying mm-hmm. with you Jesus you're going to heal me of this one too I know yeah. it right I'm staying with you because you're my only hope. Where to? To whom else can I turn? Right. right. To to what else? I've tried turning to the bottle, and that didn't work. I've tried turning to sex, and that didn't work, or whatever it might yeah. be. Right. We say we say it's 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 our only hope is in you, and uh, and that that keeps us on the path of loyalty, even in the midst of minor disloyalties that are always going on in our hearts. Yeah. Uh, before I continue on that point, one other aspect I want to bring up that you talk about in your book and. 
This one was when I hit it home to me, but you talk about like the importance of getting baptized, and I don't think you mean for salvation, as in baptismal regeneration, but just because this is in obedience to Christ. And for me, after I got saved, no one really told me about the importance of baptism at all. And I just watched people doing it, and I watched them doing it for a decade, and I just watched for good reason. As my wife would tell you, I am terrified of water, that it takes me so long to get into a swimming pool and get used to things, and this day I still don't go under. I've got a, ma- I've got a face mask someone gave me, so that's something I'm going to be trying to work on, but it is terrifying. I eventually did get baptized while I was in college, and because of a steel rod I've got on my spine, I, I went under just the bare minimum, so I could be told I have a full baptism and such. I mean, what... What does your view say to that kind of situation if someone hasn't been undergone baptism or some, something like that? Yeah, I think this is a, per, a particular problem in our, in the church today because, as you mentioned, baptism is oftentimes separated from a decision for Christ, um, and uh, baptism is not emphasized. And I think that it, this is become, this is difficult for us to sort out because in the ancient world, I, do, I don't think that that was just the norm. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that if you uh, in our, in the earliest church, if you, uh, if you decided to profess Jesus Christ as Lord, uh, it was a very, uh, brief window before when, and then you, you publicly profess that through your baptism. Um, there could have been a short p- period of catechesis sometimes to make sure that you understood what you were doing. Um, but, uh, especially our New Testament evidence suggests that it happened almost immediately. Yeah. Which also suggests that it was probably, uh, the focus was not just on the public dimension, but on the covenantal idea that you were entering into the covenant, uh, and that, uh, that this was something that you were doing before God. So, what what has happened is that is that faith has tended to get separated from the baptismal process, but the baptismal process was actually the time where you did confess your faith. Um, we we don't often we might do that as part of a baptismal ceremony, as that it might be that the pastor interviews you very briefly before the congregation, and you, mm-hmm. as part of that, confess Jesus as your Savior and Lord. Uh, I hope that's done. Uh, there are some traditions where that's not really even emphasized at all, uh, but it should very much be emphasized. And I think uh, in the ancient context text, it suggested that that it was all one seamless process. You were baptized, you confessed Jesus Christ as Lord in the middle of your baptism. This is what you did as part of the baptism. Right. And then hands were laid upon you, they invoked the Holy Spirit to come upon you, and uh, and so then as we're in retrospect trying to disentangle, like, where's the saving part of that? Right? Well, it's it's impossible to, to disentangle all of those elements, or virtually impossible, because in our ancient texts, they're really bound together very intimately. Mm. Yeah, I, I think part of this is getting to some extremely important bets that we really don't emphasize discipleship enough. Yes. Now, something else I'd like to ask about along these lines is you talk about how uh, we don't, uh, we we aren't expected to have perfect allegiance and such. And the question that occurred to me is because I support a lot of guys. I have my own men's group for marriage and such, and we get together, and one of the things that will often come up is men struggling, good men who strive to be a Christian, be Christian men, and they struggle with pornography. And so mm-hmm. they'll fall into the sin, and some will wonder, am I really a Christian if I'm dealing with this so much? Yeah. 
Uh, great question because I think it's true that especially addictions, um, yeah. including sexual addictions, alcohol addictions, you know, um, all of these things are have an incredible mm-hmm. ens- enslaving power. Uh, and that we can lose hope, you know, in the midst of them that we will ever be set free from them. Uh, and uh, I think that the answer to that question is that I think as part of the Christian life, um, par- part of what it means to be a Christian is that we can't ever give up, um, that even when we're not delivered um, in the midst of these these difficult struggles that I've, I've faced, everyone's faced, you know, of various kinds of addictions, um, that we um, – that we – no matter how t- how many times we fall down, we get back up and we say, "I'm going to try again." Jesus, I I I've almost given up hope that I can be delivered from this, but I'm trusting you that I can be eventually, that I will be eventually, that I'm going to try again, and even if I fail again, I'm going to get back up and I'm going to try again, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and to have a have a deep sense that. Um, that Jesus will not abandon us in the midst of our struggles, that he knows our sorrows, he knows our difficulties, um, and that he will come alongside with the power of the Holy Spirit and will eventually um, bring the deliverance that we need or will bring final salvation, one or the other, uh, which will be the necessary deliverance either way. I'd like to jump back to where I'd said about discipleship, about how important it is, because I kind of think that your book is excellent and we need it, but maybe we wouldn't have needed it so much if we had properly stressed discipleship all these years. Yeah, I agree. I think that um, one of the things I'm really trying to do in the book is to bring together um, discipleship and salvation theory and especially doing this um, within the purview of kind of understanding the kingdom mm-hmm. of God and that um, that when Jesus is teaching about the kingdom of God and things like that, he's giving instructions for citizens of his kingdom as to how they should live under his wise rule, mm-hmm. which is a form of allegiance to him. Uh, and so that this is intimately connected to our, our saving faith because our faith is in Jesus as the king or as the Christ, the Messiah, the atoning king, of course, but as the king. Um, and so, yeah, I think that one of the disasters within um, especially the evangelical world uh, has been the idea that we um, that salvation is really predicated around a momentary decision, uh, and then that's all that matters. And so what we need to do is we need to save some souls. Right. Right? We need to get out there and we need to preach the gospel and praise the Lord. Another soul has come into the kingdom today. Uh, and then, oh, yeah, well, that's neat. The soul uh, now is just showing up at my church. Uh, what should I do with this soul? Um, well, uh, you, you know, you need to get like uh, plugged into a discipleship program and then uh, learn some more things about Jesus, and then you can grow, I guess. But let's get out and save some more souls. Right? right? That can be uh, that can be the attitude. Yeah. Um, and the, yeah, the the problem with that is that is that it's 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 turning salvation into a punctiliar event rather than a bodily journey. And I think that does not accord with what Scripture teaches that we. Um, that we must persevere, uh, and uh, there's open questions within, you know, Arminian versus Reformed theology about whether or not perseverance is inevitable. But both traditions would agree that we must persevere, and right. that we will uh, in the in the Reformed tradition. Inevitably, uh, the Arminian tradition, perhaps you could fall away. But uh, in both traditions, in order to receive final salvation, we must persevere. So they both agree that discipleship is essential to salvation uh, uh, when it comes down to it. Uh, that we've had problematic. Uh, a, a difficult time articulating that, and part of that is because I think that we've had um, 
uh, a very linear uh, ideas of the order of salvation. You know, it might begin with God's, you know, choice of us before time began, uh, and then he uh, eventually calls us and regenerates us, and then after regeneration, then we're, we can be said to be justified, and then after being justified, we're being moved through a process of sanctification and in anticipation of final glorification. And I, I uh, what I hope to have shown in the book is that the order of salutis uh, is something that does not make sense for individual Christians. That uh, that that's not the intention of the Bible to to articulate that kind of order of salvation, and that justification and sanctification and glorification cannot be plotted on a linear axis. Yeah, I, I've had a number of times in my apologetics discussions where some skeptic be trying to mock my arguments. Where you go out and you just try and make all those converts now, okay? And I've said. Oh, I hate to disappoint you. My goal isn't to make converts. It's to make disciples. Those are two very different things. And to me, it's kind of like saying the goal of dating is to get before an altar and say, I do, someday. Marriage begins at the altar, yes, but it'd be crazy to think that's the finishing point. It's a lifelong journey after that, and... Salvation, yes, it begins for the individual when they accept Christ, but it'd be crazy to think that that's the finishing point. I see those as direct parallel there, that you don't just go and wind up at the altar and say, okay, now I'm done, and you don't just come to Jesus and then say, eh, okay, now I'm done. Yeah, yeah beautifully articulated. Thank you. And I do like not you just what you just said about the Reformed tradition and the Armenian tradition, such because I mean I'm much more Armenian in my outlook than a lot than <clears throat> well I'm I'm just very much, it's hard to to stress how much it is but yeah I'm very Armenian in my outlook and such because I've seen too many people that used to be Christians and now they're out there atheists arguing against Christianity and such and. Yet, I think people across the aisle on both sides can agree with much of what you said in this book. I mean, we might still have the same debates about Calvinism and Arminianism, but there is still a whole lot more we can agree on, I think, than we or disagree on. I hope so. I hope this book is a good ecumenical resource for, for both you know, um, reconciling you know, um, traditional Reformed ideas with Arminian ideas, but also um, – you know, also with bridging between Catholic and Protestant understandings, um, I think that one of the strengths of the last chapter is that it articulates a model of righteousness um, that might be helpful in breaking through some of the deadlock as uh, Catholics have really favored metaphors of impartation and infusion with regard to righteousness, uh, whereas Protestants have uh, favored the idea of imputed righteousness or the idea of, of, of Christ's righteousness covering us. Uh, I argue uh, that a stronger biblical model is to just stick with something more basic called incorporated righteousness or in the Christ righteousness, uh, and that if we put the emphasis there that um, some of the other problems um, that divide us may begin to melt away. So my hope is it will be an ecumenical book uh, in every way. Now, if uh, someone wants to get this book, and I think they should, you can go on Amazon right now. The paperback version is fourteen eighty seven. The Kindar version is thirteen ninety nine. The book is Salvation by Allegiance Alone. Excellent book, very readable, definitely food for thought. So much good in it here. I just have to say that for you all. 
Now, um, Dr. Bates, do you have a, a website and email or way people can get in touch with you if they want to find out more about you? Sure. Well, you could always connect with me on Facebook as I, I, I am friends with a lot of people that I don't know very well and I don't mind interacting in that way. Um, beyond that, I do have a personal website, MatthewWBates.com, that uh, aggregates some of my published research. You can also find articles on academia.edu. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, beyond that, I also host a podcast called On Script. You can mm-hmm. find that on iTunes or uh, you could go to www.onscript.study. Uh, and we really focus on doing uh, interviews with biblical scholars. So um, the, the, that's really the focus is on new biblical scholarship uh, discussing uh, uh, various titles that come out with um, with authors that are uh, um, prominent scholars in the field of Bible. Yeah, I was wanting to make sure to mention that sometime in the show, and then probably was one, hmm, I'm not sh- sure how much my audience would be interested in a show that's just about interviews with biblical scholars and such. Uh, that, that could be a bit foreign. <laughs> Yeah, it could be. I don't. I don't know your audience well enough to know what that would interest them. But, um, but some of them may be more interested in, um, you know, in what's happening in biblical studies. We've, you know, interviewed John Barclay in his yeah. book Paul and the Gift, and Richard Hayes mm-hmm. uh, with his Echoes of Scriptures and the Gospels. And mm-hmm. we do some stuff that's more theological too. We had Kevin Van Hooser on there mm-hmm. uh, with his book uh, Biblical Authority After Babylon, uh, and then or after Babel. And then, uh, you know, uh, like Scott McKnight was on there uh, mm-hmm. in Dennis Venema with Adam and the Genome recently. So we, we have a, a wide array of scholars that we bring on to discuss some of the most important ideas in biblical studies. So I don't know. Uh, your audience can make make of that what they will. Yeah, it was just a bit of humor on my part since that's pretty much what we do here as well. And I have ordered a copy from the IVP of Adam and the Genome. So hopefully we'll have a show on that sometime soon in the future. Now, do you have uh, any final words you'd like to leave for a deeper waters audience today? Uh, sure. Uh, I guess that if I was to leave a final word, it would be that to remember that Jesus died for our sins is part of the gospel, but not the entirety of the gospel, mm-hmm. that the gospel extends to Jesus, uh, Jesus' enthronement and that Jesus is king or Jesus is Lord uh, is really, uh, I would argue, the climax of the gospel and that that's where our faith is best directed. Uh, and so a good way of thinking about this is that I think that traditional evangelical theology has often uh, made Jesus' lordship an isolated fact that's external to the gospel rather than internal to the gospel. Mm-hmm. We need to make it internal to the gospel and in so doing create a gospel culture. Well, Dr. Bates, it's been great having you here again. We seem to get along so well in our interviews and such. I hope we'll see you back here again sometime. Well, thanks, Nick. It's been a real pleasure and privilege to be with you. I'd like to remind everyone that next week we're going to have Brian Godawa on here talking about his book, Tyrant, Rise of a Beast, a look at Nero's reign and what that meant for Christians and how it can affect our interpretation of books like Revelation and such. For now, I'm Nick Peters, and I'm signing off.